Welcome to Garfield Memorial Church. We are one church in three locations, Pepper Pike, Ohio, South Euclid, Ohio, and Liberia, Africa. Together, we seek to widen the circle through our core values of diversity, safety, authenticity, growth, and forgiveness. To learn more about Garfield Memorial Church, visit our website at garfieldchurch.org. And now, may you be blessed and inspired by our weekly podcast of the message from the 10 a.m. Sunday morning Mosaic worship service. Garfield Memorial Church, widening the circle. Good morning again, and welcome again to Worship with Garfield Memorial Church. I'm Scott Blevins. I'm part of the pastoral team here at Garfield Memorial, and we are continuing today in our series on reconciliation. Uh, We've shared before how this this notion of reconciled, reconciling, reconciliation has bubbled up so profoundly within our Vision 2020 team, and we're going to be continuing this series for the next several weeks. Today, based on the scripture that Pastor Terry just read, you might be wondering, what in the world does that scripture have to do with reconciliation? But hold on, we'll get there at the end, at the end of the message. Hold on tight. You might not even hear that word again until the end of the message, And, and you know, Since I'm preaching, I kind of have control over that, but I mess up sometimes. So there you go. Jesus is telling a parable in this in this section, and uh, and it's actually the second of two parables that he tells right after he's done some teaching on the end of times. And and the context matters, particularly in the Gospel of Luke and and also in the other book that Luke wrote, Acts. Uh, He's a master storyteller, and where he puts something in the narrative matters almost as much as what is put in the narrative. And so Jesus has done some teaching on the end of times. Uh, He was asked by some folks, hey, Jesus, is the kingdom of God, when is it coming? When is it going to be established? When are you going to make all things right? And Jesus said, you know what? The kingdom of God is not like what you're thinking it is. The kingdom of God is among us. It's within us. It's around us. He said, the end of times, when it comes, when it comes, nobody's going to miss it. It's going to be like, you know, uh, Noah and the flood. It's going to be like um, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. It's going to be like lightning flashing across the sky. Trust me, when this happens, you will know that it happens. But it's going to take a while. It's going to take a while. And there are going to be days when you're going to be longing for one of these days that I'm with you now to come back. Just one of them. Because it's going to get bad. And after that, Jesus said, basically with these two parables about prayer, Jesus is saying, as you're waiting, you have to be in prayer. And prayer in Luke is more than just a ritual activity. And it's more even than just conversation with God. Prayer is a sign of our relationship with God. It's an expression of our relationship with God. As we pray, so is our relationship with God. And so he tells the first story about prayer about a woman, a widow, who is who has been wronged in some fashion or another. We don't know how she's been wronged, but she's been wronged. And the judge in her town is an unjust judge and he will not give her justice. And so the widow just goes after the man. And, and Luke Johnson, I, a couple weeks ago when I preached, I, uh, I gave a shout out to uh, Kusuke Kuyama and was greatly indebted to him for that message. Today, I got to give a shout out to Luke Timothy Johnson, who I think is one of the best New Testament scholars in the world right now. He also happened to be one of my sem- professors in seminary. And, uh, and I owe a, a lot of learning from him for this sermon today. But um, 
He says, as he's talking about this parable, that, 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 you know, we can laugh at this. The image we should be getting is, you know, the bag lady who, who's accosting the judge as he gets out of his car and he's walking up the steps of the courthouse and she's got her bag. She's like, give me justice, give me justice, give me justice, give me justice. He's like, oh, stop, stop. All right, I'll do it, I'll do it. And Jesus said, you know what? God is better than some on the take unjust judge. God's mercy and God's goodness and God's righteousness are not in doubt. The Son of Man will come back and he will make all things right. But will he find anyone like this widow when he comes? Someone pleading continuously to God for justice and righteousness to come in this world. Will the Son of Man find anyone like that? Pray, be persistent in prayer as you're waiting, as you're living through these these broken, challenging, heart-wrenching, soul-crushing times. Pray, pray for justice, pray for righteousness. And then Jesus tells the parable that Pastor Terry just read about two men who went up to the temple to pray. Now, here's the bonus content that Pastor Terry was talking about. You can get this at Zoom. I don't have time to get into it right now, but it's not an accident. I believe it's not an accident, but quite intentional that the, one, the person praying in the first parable was a woman and the people praying in the second parable were men. Um, if you want to hear more about that, come to the Zoom chat at 1 o'clock today. You can hear more about that. I don't have time to get into it right now. Too many other good things to get to today. So these two men went up to the temple to pray. And Jesus said very clearly at the beginning of this parable, it was very unusual. And he said, I'm going to tell you why I'm telling this parable. I'm going to tell it as a caution to you people out there who are confident in your own righteousness. Now, there's, a, there's something in this message for everyone. And by that, I mean, there's something in this message to annoy and step on the toes of and harass and bother everyone. Whether you think of yourself as, as a moral and religious conservative who's longing for righteousness in the world, or a social justice liberal progressive who's working for justice in the world and fighting for justice, there's something in this message for you because that word at the beginning of that parable where Jesus says those who are confident in their own righteousness, the same word can be translated as justice and justness. Um, Throughout the New Testament, the word, the Greek word that gets translated righteousness also means justice. And the Greek word that gets translated justice also means righteousness because it's the same word. Just with our English translations, it's hard to see that. And so Jesus said, if you're confident in your own righteousness, or if you're confident that you are the just one seeking justice in this world, you need to be careful. We have two people praying, two men. One of them is a Pharisee. The other is a tax collector. One of them is in the minds of the people present in Jesus's day, the epitome of righteousness and justice. The other is the foulest expression of unrighteousness and injustice. And if you've grown up in the church or you've been a part of a church for a while, you might get this answer wrong if I were to put up a poll now saying which is which. Because 
You've probably heard, if you've grown up in the church, you've been in church for a while, how Jesus, you know, condemns the Pharisees and is consistently eating with and hanging out with and and lifting up the tax collectors. But the reality is that in Jesus's day, everyone would have looked at the Pharisee and said, that's a righteous dude. That's a just dude. He's got it going on. And at the tax collector and said, that guy is scum. I don't want him anywhere near my family. All right. And we know, part of the reason we know the Pharisee is righteous is because he tells us in his prayer. He's literally praying about himself. He's going to the temple. He is, in theory, in the presence of God. And he just wants to give God a report on how he's doing. And he's doing pretty well. He's not like the rest of these people, he tells us. Instead, instead he, he prays. He fasts twice a week. Scripture only requires, well, you know, the teaching and the great teachers about fasting. Fasting is a spiritual discipline. It's an ancient discipline. It's an important discipline that's gone out of fashion in the Western, particularly the American church. But it was very important in Jesus' day and still is important in the lives of many very faithful people. Um, And and, and a lot of, of teachers on fasting will say, fast once a week. And the Pharisees like, I fast twice a week. Twice a week. And the Pharisee tithes, and he tithes on everything that he has. Now, a lot of you might be like, I'm all about tithing. I give to the church. I give to the church. Do you know that tithe means 10%? If you're giving 10% of your gross income to the church, you're tithing. If you're not giving 10% of your gross income, you might be giving, but you're not tithing. And the Pharisee gives of everything that he has. And the Pharisees in the day, they had a reputation for not just doing one tithe, but two tithes. Are you aware, particularly if you're one of those folks it's like all about righteousness and I do what the Bible says. You know that the Bible doesn't just say one tithe. The Bible says two tithes. The first tithe that was commanded by God was a tithe that supported the temple and the administration and the administrative structure. It cared for the maintenance of the building and it provided for the physical needs of the priests and the Levites who served at the temple and led the people in worship. That was the first tithe. Then there was a second tithe. Now we're at 20% of your gross income. The second tithe that the Pharisee was giving was to support the poor. It was one of the means of providing social justice in the day. And the Pharisee says, I do that. I don't just give to the church. I take care of the poor. And I'm a good family man. I'm faithful to my wife, faithful to my children. Folks would have had to say, you know, yeah, he is. Now we'll get to more on that later. But the tax collector, the tax collector epitomized everything that was wrong in the world today. Whether you were a liberal or a conservative, the tax collector was wrong. Think about that. Something liberals and conservatives could agree on was that the tax collector was wrong. The liberals would have said he is a political He's unjust. He's economically unjust. He's an oppressor of others. The conservatives would say he's a political traitor and a religious traitor. He's a traitor to his country and a traitor to his faith. And the tax collector was all of those things. The Romans had invaded Israel hundreds of years before. They had taken over control of the administration of the government of Israel. They even regulated to a certain extent the worship life of the, the Jewish people. And the Romans were hated. They were outsiders. They were pagans. This violated God's will and God's way and God's intention. And the tax collector was working for them. He was working for them, and he was getting rich working for them. Under the rules of the day, that tax collector, if the Roman government said, hey, collect $50 in tax from everyone, that tax collector could have collected $100 in tax and kept the extra 50 for himself, and it all would have been okay. And so tax collectors often got rich by economically impressing their own people. 
And he was a political traitor, supporting the invading government over his own people. And he was immoral, you know, at least according to the Pharisee, too. I mean, if he's doing all of those other things, he's probably cheating on his wife as well, you know, how those people are. The tax collector, the tax collector prayed differently than the Pharisee prayed. He too was standing by himself. We'll get to that a little bit later. But he showed signs of humility. He wouldn't even draw close to the temple. He was in the area, but he wouldn't get close to where God was. That was God's house on earth. God's presence on earth was in the temple. And he didn't want to get too close to the holy God. He wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, turn toward God's throne in the heavens. He wouldn't even do that. He stood back. He kept his eyes down and he beat his breast which was a sign in the Old Testament of grief and of repentance. And all he could pray was not not even, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I don't know why all of the English translations get this wrong. In the Greek, it's clearly, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. And all the tax collector was living out one of the sayings of the desert fathers who wouldn't show up for another 400 years, who said, when you pray, you need to pray like in all the world there is only you and God. Live like in all the world, there is only you and God. And that tax collector, he's there praying. And God's presence and his presence is the only thing that he's aware of. And in God's presence, all he knows about himself is that he is a sinner who needs mercy. He's got nothing to justify himself with. Nothing he can bring to God and say, because of this God, you should accept me and receive me and welcome me. Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. He prayed what Adam and Eve couldn't pray. When they were confronted by God himself in the garden and they were just broken everything. And God said, where are you? And Adam said, I'm here. I'm hiding because I'm naked. And God said, what did you do? And he said, it was the woman. And the woman said, it was the snake. And the snake didn't even get a chance to answer. But they couldn't do what this disgusting, dirty, rotten tax collector did. Which was just say, have mercy on me, a sinner. I got nothing to bring to you, God. Luke Johnson says that the Pharisee was praying with peripheral vision. He went to God in prayer. He was very aware of all the people around him. If you're confident in your own righteousness, if you're confident about your own justice, then, then, then you got to constantly be looking at other people. Because, you know, I mean, it's really only the, the super ridiculously arrogant, narcissistic kind of person that say, I really am all good. There's nothing wrong with me. Most people will say, oh, yeah, I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not like that person. Whoever that person is for you. Whoever that person is. If you're confident in your own righteousness, if you're confident in your own sense of in your, in your own justness, then you need people to be able to look at and say, at least I'm not that person. Otherwise, you'll lose all confidence. And Jesus said it was the tax collector, not the Pharisee, that went home justified. Went home justified. Why? Because those who are self-exalting will be humbled and those who are self-humbling will be exalted by God, by God. Now, here's the thing. 
15 minutes in, I'm now done with the introduction. Don't worry, we're not going to be here for an hour and a half. I just got to talk fast. Here's the thing. It's so easy to be the Pharisee. Let me tell you how easy it is to be the Pharisee. As I was preparing this message, one of the first things I did was I started making a list of modern Pharisees. If we want to identify the people we don't want to be like, who are those people today? Ah! Me! I'm the Pharisee! If you're sitting here or there, wherever you are going, I know some Pharisees, you're one of them. Because that's what Pharisees do. They're looking out of the corner of their eyes at the other people who have it wrong, that are bad, that are worse than they are, and saying, at least I'm not like them. When we do that, when I do that, when you do that, we are a Pharisee. And Jesus said it's not good to be a Pharisee. Jesus repeatedly says, you Pharisees, you're rapacious. The Pharisees said that about other people, these rapacious people. We don't get to use that word very much. I'm going to say it as much as I can here in this sermon. I like that word rapacious. Jesus had already said the Pharisees were rapacious. Rapacious means not just greedy, but a, a willingness and sometimes actively using violence and extortion to get the wealth of another person for yourself. Jesus said Pharisees are rapacious. You Pharisees are immoral. You're like empty, you're like tombs, unmarked tombs full of dead people's bones. You might look pretty on the outside, but you're dirty on the inside. So easy to be the Pharisee, trying to justify ourselves by looking for the people around us that at least we're not like them. You know, instead of giving you a list of of Pharisees. I'm going to tell you a parable of my own. Uh, Once upon a time, you know it's a parable because it begins once upon a time. Once upon a time, there was a man, a young man named Scott Blevins. Maybe you've heard of him. He was a good looking man. Back in the day, he had a full head of hair. Hey, we got applause in the house. Absolutely. He was educated, especially in things of the Bible, even when as a young man. He went to church every Sunday, youth group every Sunday afternoon, Sunday school before worship every week. Uh, And he went to a Christian school where he had Bible classes every day of the week and chapel once a week. And when he graduated from high school, he knew more of the Bible than most seminary grads that he knew. And he went to college. And all his people in his church and his people in his school, they warned him about in college, there are going to be all of those people there, whoever those people were. He had a very specific list of those people when he went. I won't give you that list now because I'm going to look bad enough in this story as it is. He had a list of those people. He had to be on the guard against people living immoral, indecent, ungodly lives and people teaching false things as truth. And they told him, be bold and speak out against that and speak the truth when you go to college and stand up for Jesus. And Jesus' way. And Scott did that. And he did that boldly in his classrooms and in his dormitory and in the dining hall. And one day in class, a young woman came in with a report. It was a small class, a seminar that was focused on discussion and student response. And she made her presentation. It was about the Adam and Eve story. And she presented it in such a way that Scott found it offensive and unbiblical and heretical and terrible and awful. And he proceeded to tell her that in no uncertain terms. And his voice dripped with every bit the amount of contempt and disdain that the Pharisee had for that tax collector. And this woman who was intelligent and strong and smart 
and capable was reduced, he seemed to think at the end almost to tears as he did everything he could to humiliate her in front of the class. And I'll tell you, at the end of that day, at the end of that class, this young man who had been defending Jesus did not go to his room justified before God. It is so easy to be a Pharisee. But the fact is, we're all really tax collectors, right? We're all really tax collectors. You might say to me, Scott, I'm not a tax collector. I'm not unjust. I'm not, well, I might have some moral problems here and there, but everybody does. And I'm, but I'm not an economic oppressor and whatever. You know what? Stop. Stop. You know, I think that there's a couple things that liberals and conservatives can agree on. You know, the liberals and conservatives, all of them that I know, agree that slavery was an awful thing in the history of our country. Are you aware that there are more slaves in the world now than there were at the height of institutionalized chattel slavery, race-based slavery in the United States? And, And you know what? I strongly suspect that my clothes, at least some of them, were made by slaves. And that the components of my tablet, at least some of them, were made by slaves. And some of the components in the car that I drove here and that I'll drive home, some of them were made by slaves. Our lifestyle is built on the back of slaves. As surely as the cotton trade was in the 1850s in the United States. We're all tax collectors. We're all tax collectors. The question is our level of awareness. You see, the difference between the tax collector and the Pharisee was not that one was broken and the other wasn't, but that one was aware of his brokenness. There's another phrase, the concept, idea that's been, you know, bubbling up repeatedly with a very profound sense of meeting in the Vision 2020 team, and that's this, that we as Garfield Memorial Church, that we exist to connect diverse people who share a common brokenness with Jesus. We are diverse in this church. We are diverse in this world. But we have at least one thing in common, and that is that we are broken. We are broken. You and I. You know, the, the Desert Fathers used to say, I think I mentioned it already, to, to live and pray with this in mind in all the world there is only me and God. And, and that, that sense that when God shows up, I become aware of my brokenness. It happens over and over again in the scripture and people fall on their faces and they cry out and they repent because in the presence of God, they're aware of their brokenness. That was that, that truth that, that the fathers were trying to get to, that idea that, that when I'm in the presence of God, what I need to be aware of is God and my brokenness and not be looking out of the corner of my eye at the other folks. They had another saying though, my life and death is with my neighbor. Jesus ends the story talking to us as one of them goes home to their house that day justified and the self-exalting because the self-exalting will be humbled and the self-humbling will be exalted. But that, that justified 
They're going to their house. It's an interesting phrase there. They're going home. Each of them's going home to their separate homes. I want to add a little epilogue to this story. And um, I'm not adding to the scripture, all right? Don't hear that. Uh, I'm, I'm, what I'm saying, I think you can find in a lot of other places in scripture. But just a little epilogue, a little bit of a what if. Can we do some what if? What if the Pharisee, instead of standing at the temple basking in the light of his own goodness and righteousness and justness. By the way, if, if, if you feel the light shining on you and it's illuminating the sins of the people around you, it's probably not the light of God. But what if instead of basking in the light of his own wonderfulness, he had been aware of his own brokenness? That he was as broken as the tax collector was. And what if instead of those two standing far apart, what if they had stood together? What if they had prayed together? What if they had gone home together and shared a meal together? In that relationship, and that friendship, they could have found a balm to heal their aching souls. Now, the fact is, they could also have just as easily gone home together and said, Ah, you know what? <laughs> We're all screwed up. Let's get wasted and enjoy it. What if they had not just come together in their brokenness, but come together with Jesus in their brokenness? Jesus ate with tax collectors. Jesus ate with Pharisees. What what if they had been able to acknowledge and see that despite all of the things that made them different, they were so deeply alike in all of the ways that really mattered. They were human beings created in the image of God, but they were broken human beings who had failed to live up to the glory of God that God had for them. What if they had recognized that and shared their brokenness with Jesus? And now they're beyond to something. Now they got something going here because Jesus would share their brokenness. Jesus wouldn't have said, oh man, you people are awful. Get away from me. Jesus wasn't about that. Jesus was the only one in the world who could really have authentically prayed the prayer that Jesus, that the Pharisee prayed of, thank God I'm not like these people. Instead, Jesus said, I am like you. Come to me. Share your brokenness with me. I'll share it with you. I'm not saying Jesus sinned. Okay, don't hear that. I didn't say that. But Jesus became sin. The Bible says that. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin. The Bible says that it is by Jesus' stripes, by the breaking of Jesus' body, that we are healed. Jesus himself took the bread and said, this is my body broken for you. It was the brokenness of Jesus that unites us. And Jesus, broken, was laid in the ground, dead and buried. And on the third day, God raised him from the dead. And even in that new life, Jesus bears the scars of his and our brokenness. And the tax collector and the Pharisee could have shared that together. They could have come together 
and shared their brokenness with each other and shared their brokenness with Jesus. And if they had done that, they would have both been justified. And that would have been one thing else they had in common. So now they've got brokenness in common. They've got Jesus in common. They've got justified in common. And they would have been reconciled. You see, I don't think reconciliation is possible unless we become aware of our brokenness. And that goes for everyone who's calling for justice, who's calling for righteousness, whether you're a social justice warrior pursuing justice in this world or, or, or a, a righteous person who's seeking the righteousness of God in this world, you're broken too. We share a common brokenness that Jesus shares with us. And as we share that together, as we acknowledge that, we can not only be justified, but reconciled. There's a lot of work that goes along with that. If you haven't read it, or maybe if you've read it and, and it's far enough ago, go back and reread it. Pastor Chip, I think it was on September 12th, wrote an e-note where he talked about some of the hard work of reconciliation. And he, he shared the story of Tim and Matthew. And, and I'm gonna, I might get the names wrong, but I believe Tim was a gay teenager and Matthew was a white supremacist. And Matthew and his white supremacist buddies beat the crap out of Tim and left him for dead. And 26 years later, they met. I still have hope that I'm going to meet that young woman again for my college class. 26 years later, they met working at the Museum of Reconciliation in Los Angeles. And they shared their story of reconciliation And it was hard work. And we have to be aware of our own brokenness if we're going to enter into that work. Otherwise, we run the risk of just saying to that other person, if you just get your act together, then we can be justified. If you can reconcile, if you can just become a little more like me, then we can be reconciled. If you can just let go of all of your stuff, then we can be reconciled. In all the world, there is only me and God. Work on your stuff. And let God work with them on their stuff. Because in all the world, there is only you and God, but your life and your death is with your neighbor. The Desert Fathers loved this story so much. They took this prayer of the Pharisee and made it their life's work of prayer. And it became their goal for many of them, for every breath they breathed, that they would breathe in, Lord Jesus Christ, and breathe out, have mercy on me, the sinner. What a way to live. What a way to pray. What a way to open the door for reconciliation in this world. And once the door for reconciliation is open, then, then the door for justice and righteousness is open as well. We can't get to justice. We can't get to righteousness without reconciliation. In Jesus' name, amen.